Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker, and it's my privilege to step with you through these sermons by the gifted pastor and preacher in Victorian England, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Our featured sermon this week, the the one of the seven that we're reading through the week, which we have selected as a representative element of Spurgeon's overall ministry, is Christ the glory of his people. It was delivered on the 22nd of March, 1868, on a Lord's Day evening. It's number 826 in the sequence, and we're chosen it out of 822 to 828, which is this week's reading. The text is short and simple, Luke chapter 2 and verse 32. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Spurgeon's introduction is interesting. You may be aware, if you've been listening before, that Spurgeon has a chapter in his Pastoral Theology, Lectures to My Students, in which he deals with spiritualizing and warns against some of its excesses. And there are many people, uh, today certainly, and I think in his own day, who would have accused him of spiritualizing his texts, which is why it is striking that he begins this sermon, literally the first sentence, we must read this passage literally, for so Simeon intended it. I think it's important to be fair to Spurgeon in emphasizing or asserting that he does understand his text in its context. He usually acknowledges this, at least in part, even if he's moving on from that literal sense to use it by way of illustration or application. He's adept at seeing the the new covenant implications, we might say, of any particular text. It's the extension or the uh, the demonstration of his oft-stated principle that just as from every town and hamlet and village in in England a road leads to London, so every text has a road in it that leads to Christ. Now, sometimes I think that road's a little easier to find. Uh, other times he uh, he rather has to hack a path through the undergrowth. But it's that principle that drives his understanding. And that's what moves him from the literal meaning to the illustration or application or extension of that meaning to Christ and to his people. So, the Lord Jesus, he says, once despised and rejected by his own countrymen, is the great honour and splendour of God's people Israel. And we should never speak, he says, slightingly or dismissively of the Jew. It ill behoves the Christian church to despond concerning the conversion of the seed of Israel. There's no uh, advantage in it. It's not the way that we should think. We shouldn't be indifferent, as we sometimes are, says Spurgeon, to the conversion of Israel. And he says, it would have been wrong for me to use this text as I'm going to use it if I had not first given you its primary meaning. We have no right to use texts for other purposes without first of all giving the literal meaning and saying such and such is originally the mind of the Holy Spirit. And again, if we're going to talk about Spurgeon's hermeneutics, his principles of interpretation and his exegesis and homiletics, how he both explains and then structures the text as he's teaching it, we have to acknowledge that this is what he thinks he's doing. Perhaps we might need to say 
that we are not as good as doing what Spurgeon does in moving from the literal meaning to a wider application and illustration, as we may think Spurgeon was bad at giving the literal meaning. Anyway, his point is that we can make a sort of transference from Israel to the new covenant saints of God, from the nation-state to the Israel of God, spiritually speaking. Why? Because God has made a covenant with them as he did with Jacob. He's made with us a covenant ordered in all things and sure. This is the great fountain of all our mercies and ground of all our hopes. Our covenant God is the delight of our inmost souls, our castle and high tower, our sun and our shield. Then again, we may be compared with Israel because we've learned to wrestle with the angel and prevail. And it's interesting here that he's shifting back now, uh, back and forth between Israel as a nation and Israel as the patriarch. It is one mark of the heir of heaven that he understands the value of secret prayer and that he exercises himself in it, that it is to him as stern a reality as wrestling is to the athlete when he seeks to hurl his antagonist to the ground. Not a mumbling of words, but a marshalling of all the powers of manhood to come into contest loving and blessed contest with God himself. Then, God's people today are like Israel with regard to the fact that they are much tried. Faith must be tried. God had one son without sin, but never a son without the rod. Then we should be like Israel or Jacob in our faith, a faith that cannot be satisfied with all the green plains of Goshen, nor the granaries of Egypt, but which longs for the better state, the promised land, which to the eyes of our body may be invisible, but which to the eye of our faith is clearly revealed. Then, furthermore, the true Israel, which are spiritually the Church of Christ, are said, according to, to, according to the text, to be the Lord's people. What ties make us gods? We're his by eternal choice. He has set his love upon us. The saints are redeemed from among men. Thus we are Christ's by double bonds, the gift of the Father and the purchase of his own blood. Then by voluntary dedication of ourselves to him, he's drawn us to himself and we have given ourselves to him. And then again in conjugal bonds, we are married to him as chaste virgins. His unbounded love espoused us before time began and has by no means diminished. So, in every sense, by our likeness to Israel, as the, the fullness is to the type, and then by these particular connections with God in Christ Jesus, we can say, entering into this text in a proper way, that Christ is indeed not only a light to lighten the Gentiles, but the glory of his people Israel, and as much our glory now as he was the glory of Israel after the flesh, had they but known him to be so. And so Spurgeon moves now to those who are like Israel and who belong to Christ to understand that Christ is the glory of those people. And so we pause a moment and then plunge into the centre of the text. And his first point is this. When we say that Christ is our glory, we mean that we get all the glory we have through him. That's the first point, that we who are Christians get all the glory we have through Christ Jesus. 
In all kinds of places, men have sought after honour, but the believer says that Christ is the mine in which he digs for this gold, Christ the sea in which he fishes for this pearl. He gives up all other searchings and looks for glory in Jesus and nowhere else. What then is this glory which Christ is to us? Well, we have the glory first of election, that is, being chosen by God out of the rest of mankind to be a separated people, a glory bestowed upon us, for God has chosen us in him from before the foundation of the world. Our next glory is that we are redeemed. What an honour, what a blessing to think that God has given his only begotten Son that we might be ransomed from the grave and belong to him. Furthermore, is it not a glory for a Christian that he's adopted, brought into the family of God and made a son, again, only through Jesus Christ? We are joint heirs with him. And for each of these points, Spurgeon either quotes or paraphrases scripture to emphasize that it is in Christ that we have this boast. I am justified further. We can stand upright and say, who shall lay anything to my charge before the court of king's bench of heaven, before the chancery of the universe? Who dare condemn me? Now, no man, says Spurgeon, can claim justification of a truth except through Jesus Christ. For here is the top and the bottom of a man's justification that the righteousness of Christ has been given to him and that the blood of Christ has washed him. So remember, he says, we're accepted but accepted in the beloved. And we are justified, but justified in his righteousness. We're a people dear to God and near unto him, but all this lies in Jesus Christ. Then there's the glory of sanctification, that uh, conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. But, says Spurgeon, everything which makes us like Christ first comes from Christ, not the works of the law, not the strivings of the flesh, not the teachings of philosophy, but it is from the water and the blood from his riven side which flowed. And then says Spurgeon, isn't it a great glory to a man to know that he is safe? And here he's contrasting his distinctive Calvinism with the Arminian teaching of uh, many of his friends. I love our Arminian friends very heartily, he says, but I should not like to be one of them myself, for they have such a precarious salvation that they do not know whether it will ultimately save them or not. For Spurgeon, for me, and for others who uh, believe in the Scriptures in the way that we do, who believe that the Word of God teaches most plainly that all upon whom he has set his love drawn to him must remain with him and that he will keep them to the end, that is a glory for us. It's a delight that has been bestowed upon us. We can trust Christ to save us, not today, not tomorrow, because he's wrought out for us an everlasting salvation. I believe that he will be with me and own my name at the bar of judgment, says Spurgeon. And then your glory and your safety are in Christ and Christ only. So Spurgeon's first point really is to sketch out something of the, the span of salvation, the process of God's uh, working for the, the blessing of his people and emphasizing salvation above all the other blessings we enjoy, and that's quite proper, emphasizes then that there is not a single treasure which a Christian possesses which does not come to him through Christ. 
he has nothing in which he can glory, but what he is sweetly compelled to say of it, I gained this in the market of Calvary. I found this in the mines of a Saviour's suffering. All this came to me through my bleeding, buried, risen, coming Lord, and he shall have the glory of it as long as I live. So you see now how Spurgeon is beginning to develop this implication and application of his text. If we as God's people are in relation to Christ in this way, then we can say that Christ is our glory just as much as he was the glory of national Israel, and we can understand our salvation then in distinctly and sweetly Christocentric or Christ-centered terms, appreciating that every good thing we receive, all that in which we boast or glory, everything that delights our hearts is from and in Jesus Christ. But, says Spurgeon, there's a second meaning to the text, which is this, that we see a glory in Christ which swallows up all other glories as the sun's light conceals the light of the stars. We see that glory in his person. We are often overwhelmed as we contemplate his Godhead and his manhood divinely blended. All Christ's attributes strike his people as glorious. And I hope that that is true of you. I hope that you are learning to love, to meditate upon Christ and to meditate upon the Christ whom you love. You shall never see anything so glorious, says our preacher, as the person of the beloved, if your eyes are but once favoured to gaze upon him and your heads but once permitted to lean upon his loving bosom. Brothers, the moon is a blot and the sun a burnt-out coal compared with our Emmanuel. This is Spurgeon's delight in Christ. It's bleeding over into his sermon. We love to consider his nature, his uh, godhood, his manhood, his uh, perfections as the God-man, the excellence of his mediation. We love to see also the glory of his sufferings. Yes, despised and rejected by men, but the regenerate heart clings fast to him. He's bright in heaven. He is worshipped forever as the son of our souls. But if there be a place where above all others we would kiss his feet and wash them with our tears and love him best of all, it is Calvary's cross. When we see Christ suffering and dying in our place, then we see him as the all in all of our souls and we boast in his accomplishments. Then, Spurgeon says, saying, I'm running out of time and therefore speeding through some of these things. He would have been glorious to us in his resurrection if we'd had time to consider that, especially since he's taught us to rise with him in newness of life, then in his ascension, sitting at the right hand of the Father, then in his intercession, uh, speaking on our behalf in the holiest place of all made without hands. Glorious in his second advent, for we expect him soon, coming in his majesty, and we will glory in him. So again, what you see here is Spurgeon really using some systematic theological categories in order to structure his sermon. The first point is really our glorying in Christ soteriologically, in the sense of we work through the doctrine of salvation, in connection with Christ, and we glory in that. Now it's really Christologically, in terms of his own person and his work, both in terms of what he has accomplished, 
what he is accomplishing and what he will yet accomplish. And so Spurgeon is really hanging this text uh, on these these hooks which are already provided for him. And I'm not saying that we who are preachers should should just carelessly or thoughtlessly adopt this approach and imagine that we can, as it were, tick off a few books uh, boxes from a textbook uh, and say, well, I'll just use this text in order to th- throw some light on on this sequence. But it is important to see how our biblical theology, we had some of that in his introduction, our systematic theology, even we might say to some extent our historical theology, both uh, informs the way we preach and sometimes helps to structure the way we preach. We need it to underpin our handling of the Bible, even as the Bible itself informs and forms the way that we uh, manage our biblical or systematic or whatever other it may be uh, element of theology. Spurgeon then uh, is showing us here, incidentally, not, not directly, but incidentally, his understanding of the way that the whole Bible holds together. But he's got a lot of little points, so we need to, to press on as well. The third point, that the text is true in the sense that we give glory to him. And Spurgeon says it, it makes a Christian's blood boil to see a popery in, uh, in England, to, to see a professed Protestant church give way to a pack of scamps who call themselves priests. He says the danger is that that men and even to some extent uh, men thinking they're putting angels in the way between a man and his God. The bringing in of idolatry into the worship of God. And Spurgeon says here is the touchstone to try your religion by. When you pray, to whom do you pray? Through whom do you pray? It's important to stop and think about these questions now. When I pray, to and through whom am I praying? Who am I conscious of? Who am I depending upon in prayer? When you sing, for whom is the song meant? Are you singing for an audience? Are you singing for enjoyment? Or are you singing for Christ? When you preach... To whose honour do you preach? Are you demonstrating your own gifts? Are you indulging your own fancy? Are you playing to the crowd? Or are you preaching that Christ may be magnified? To whom do you intend to do service? When you go out among the poor, when you distribute alms, when you scatter your tracts, when you talk about the gospel, for whom do you do this? Is it because your conscience is uneasy? Do you like the applause or appreciation of the people who may be watching, other believers or or even the world, thinking you're a good people? As the Lord lives, says Spurgeon, if you do it for yourself or for any besides the Lord Jesus, you do not know what the vitality of godliness is. For Christ and Christ only must be the grand object of the Christian. The promotion of his glory must be that for which he is willing to live and for which, if needs be, he would be prepared to die. So, down with your fine music and your pomp and your robes and your garments and all your ceremonials, but up, up, up with the doctrine of the naked cross and the expiring Saviour. Let the voice ring throughout the whole world. Look unto me 
and live. Spurgeon's conversion text. There is life in a look at the crucified one. There is life in simple confidence in him, but there is life nowhere else. God send to his church an undying passion to promote the Saviour's glory, an invincible, unconquerable pang of desire and longing that by any means King Jesus may have his own and may reign throughout these realms. So Spurgeon is pressing this home. If Christ is our glory, then not only do we get all the glory we have through him, not only do we see glory in him, but we actively give glory to him and all our service, our worship distinctly and everything else that we do ought to be done with an eye to the honour of Jesus Christ. And then from Jesus is reflected all the glory which is put upon his people. Whatever glory we may have, and we have much, he says, in the eyes of angels, much in the eyes of discerning men, it is always a reflection of the Saviour's glory. Everything that we possess and enjoy, says Spurgeon, really comes to us in connection with Jesus Christ. It's interesting, he says now, if you take down some of the old books of the Puritans and others, I know which you will love the best if you love Christ. Why? Those that talk of him. And when you get into the middle of the chapter where some holy man of God is extolling him, then you say, he being dead yet speaks and speaks just that to which my ear would listen. I hope you you know what that's like. You read so many uh, books today that uh, really some of them have nothing much to do with Christ or or they, they, they come at him tangentially. Some of them have a lot about him, but there are very few that are full of him and and. Ever so often you'll you'll find, perhaps in some of these old texts, you'll find a book that will make you say, Ah, oh, now this is full of Christ. It's all about him and it's delighted with him and it sets him forth in ways that, that thrill my soul. And Spurgeon says, I know those books. I know which ones you're talking about. They're the ones that lift up our hearts. He says then, if you make anything to be your glory except Christ... God will prepare a worm to eat the root of it, for he will have you, and if you are his, he will have you chaste to himself, that is, pure for himself, and you never shall have anything to glory but in Christ. This, then, is the Christian's great desire, says our preacher, that he may win Christ, and this it is which gives glory to him and makes him esteemed of God to have lived with an unselfish passion for Jesus, gleaming in his breast, to have lived with so heavenly a brightness shining from his brow and glittering through his entire life. Now he moves on again. Fifth point. The text may be read in this sense. Christ is the glory of his people, that is, they expect glory when he comes. It does not now appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Our glory, he says, is laid up. We're not yet wearing our Sunday best. All this is but the weekday garb, very dusty and commonplace. And with the many, the poor body is getting very worn out too. But what will come when Jesus returns and we are raised up with him in glory? He says we can't even begin to speak about that. For we should never leave off at all if we began to talk about that glory the glory of perfection, the glory of being delivered from sin, the glory of conquest, having trodden Satan under our feet, the glory of eternal rest, the glory of infinite security, 
the glory of being like Christ, the glory of his of being in the light and brightness of God, standing like Milton's angel in the sun itself. If you want to know what heaven is, you can spell it in five letters. And when you put the five letters together, they sound like this. Jesus, that is heaven. And so Spurgeon's taken you really from the, the root of salvation through the experience of salvation, pointed you to the Saviour himself, uh, emphasised how we uh, give glory to him, emphasised how in connection with him we receive all this blessing and honour, and pointing forwards to the anticipated glory with Christ at his return. So you've got this wonderful sweep across uh, spiritual history and experience, all of it in connection with Jesus Christ. And so far as it goes, even to this point, it's wonderful to see how Spurgeon preaches these things in connection with the Lord Jesus. It's not just uh, that uh, Christ is somewhere in the background. It, it is not either that these things are seen in separation or distinction from the person and work of Jesus Christ. But Spurgeon shows how everything plugs into him and flows out of him and exists in connection to him in our experience as God's people. And so as he brings this to a close, he wants us to grasp the practical drift of the subject. So here are his applications and they're they're reasonably brief but pointed. First of all, a word of warning to those of you who seek your glory anywhere else. Because as surely as you do so, even if you meet with honour for a time, you will have to lose it. If you're looking for, for something in which to boast anywhere apart from Jesus Christ, if it's in fame and, and reputation and uh, success and accomplishment, Spurgeon says, when you wake in the day of judgment, you grasper of earthly honours will get will get reaching for your glory and trying to find it, but you'll be like the sleeper who dreamt that he had much gold, was gathering it up by handfuls, and woke in a narrow attic in the abode of poverty as penniless as when he fell asleep. If you are going to have some kind of security, if you are going to enjoy some kind of uh, of certainty, then you're going to need to find it all and only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do but put your treasures into Christ, he says, and they are all safe. And so that word of warning gives way to a word of rebuke. How often have I heard the complaint from Christian people, Sir, our minister is a talented man, on the whole a sound man doctrinally, and he preaches to us a great deal about the gospel. But oh, we wish he would preach the gospel, not preach about it, but preach the thing itself. Oh, that he would preach Christ. And again, we're back with that point, aren't we? Preaching around Christ and not preaching Christ himself. The best sermons are the sermons which are fullest of Christ. A sermon without Christ, it's an awful, a horrible thing. It's an empty well. It's a cloud without rain. It's a tree twice dead, plucked by the roots. An abominable thing to give men stones for bread and scorpions for eggs. And yet they do so who preach not Jesus. And he goes on to to complain about this being like a loaf of bread without flour. Brothers, he says, let us, if we cannot blow the silver trumpet, at least blow the ram's horn. But let the blast always be Christ, 
Christ, Christ. What he means is you may not have a phenomenal eloquence. You may not be the most gifted of ministers. But even if you don't have the, the silver trumpet, if you're a sort of more rough and ready character, at least let the blast from either instrument be Christ and Christ only. Always let us make the walls ring with the dear name of the exalted Saviour, and let us tell men that there is salvation in no other, but that there is salvation and life for them in Jesus. Life for them now, life for every soul that looks to Jesus, depending alone in him. And then he wants us to understand that some of us are loving Jesus, but we are ashamed to say so. How can that be, he asks, if he's the glory of his people Israel? I shall be afraid of you and for you if you do not make Jesus your glory. You're ashamed to confess him and his cause, and it should be your shame that you are ashamed. You ought to be openly, honestly, and transparently a child of God. He says, don't put off testifying of Christ. Don't put off declaring yourself a child of God. Don't put off baptism as a declaration of your identity in and with Christ, in his death, in his uh, burial, in his resurrection. Don't put off openly acknowledging yourself as one of his people. He says, "Come, come to the elders of the church if you belong to Jesus Christ. If you do not, don't profess, though, to be what you're not. Mind you, do not come forward and say you are Christ's if you are not. He's got this attention almost. If you're Christ's, show it, prove it, state it, declare it. But if you're not, then come to him because he's to be had for the asking. Don't pretend that he's yours, but seek him and he will be found of you. Go not to your rest tonight till you've said, Lord, you are the glory of your people. Be my glory. Give me yourself. Help me to trust you. And after you've done that, then avow him, testify of him, and God bless you for his own name's sake. It's a very sweet sermon. It's in some ways very typical of Spurgeon, and I hope that it's been a blessing to you. Do join us again, God willing, next week uh, for Sermon 830. Uh, the sermon title is Grey Hairs, and it may not be the sermon that you might have guessed it would be with that title. Uh, we're reading next week from Sermon 829 to 835 if you want to join us in the daily reading. If you're just doing the weekly reading, then you might want to sign up for the uh, podcast newsletter at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you'll get a, a little introduction to the sermon and a, a link to the sermon text itself, or you can follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. But do, if you want to, uh, let others know about the podcast and the reading scheme, and God willing, I will see you, or at least uh, be with you in some way or other, next time when we can look at this sermon on grey hairs and learn again more of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to being with you again. God bless.